Hello, and welcome to the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph. And I'm Ashley Wakefield. And we're here to take you on a journey through the boring parts of your Bible, books that you just couldn't finish when you tried to read them. Together, I hope we'll get to see some of the hidden beauty in these books, and maybe afterwards you'll love them too. But if not, that's okay. You will still get to tell your friends you got through them and have full bragging rights to your pastor. Just don't let it go to your head. So let's get started. Welcome back to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, teaching pastor here at Wayfarers Christian Church, and I've got with me here in the studio today, Ashley Wakefield. Hi, Ashley. Hey. Uh, Today, we are going through chapter by chapter through the book of Isaiah, and we have hit chapter 19, which uh, if you've been uh, following along in our series so far, we've been uh, going through a section called the Oracles Against the Nations, which is really just a section of Isaiah where we're tackling different nations that surround Judah and Israel, which have split at this point. Um, And at this point, we're walking through Egypt. Um, We covered Ethiopia last week, and uh, we talked about how Ethiopia and Egypt uh, were really uh, close to one another, and Ethiopia, even for a bit of time, had uh, taken control of Egypt. And uh, so the foreshadowing in the last chapter was that today we were going to get to the very center of Egypt and talk about what's going on in Egypt. What, Ashley, what were your just overall thoughts with this chapter? Uh, did you enjoy it? Yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, this one was a little bit longer than the last one we did. Um, I kind of like how God is kind of portrayed as looking, being a father to like the other nations outside of Israel, kind of like punishing them and then forgiving them and showing them mercy afterwards. Um, I kind of like that aspect of it. And I kind of saw certain similarities between Egypt and Israel. I don't know, that's just me when I saw it. Um, You you may think differently. Um, But yeah, I saw that, um, like for example, uh, when it talked about the Egyptians being against one another, um, it kind of reminded me how that's kind of how Israel naturally ended up um, because they refused to listen to the judges. So they started off listening to judges, and at the end of the book, they were at war with one another. Um, mm. So it kind of reminded me of that, how like when you're not keeping God at the center, that rebellion and war and strife and hatred among your own people can naturally come about. Um, that kind of stuff in like Egypt, um, God specifically telling Egypt that a hard king was going to get put over them. And it kind of reminds me of when they were rec- asking Samuel to give them a king and so God was like okay you can have a king but this is how they're going to be and it's kind of like the same concept of how they weren't going to treat them very well and so I kind of saw glimpses of Israel and inside of Egypt and what was being pronounced over them. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, In Isaiah in particular, you will see a lot of times references made to uh, just how uh, really Israel is becoming exactly like the nation that they were delivered from, you know, and it's almost that cycle of um, the enslaved becomes the enslavers. So you can see that even in like judges, how like they enslave all of the uh, peoples of Canaan uh, and make them uh, taskmasters. And you can even see that in Solomon's reign. Uh, One of the big things about Solomon's reign is that, yeah, everybody talks about how great he did in building all these palaces and he built the temple of the Lord but the underlying current through that in First Kings is that he enslaved a lot of people to create all of those things and so much so that uh, the nation of Israel 
after Solomon died, uh, ended up rebelling against his son, Rehoboam, exactly because he enslaved them. Um, and so he even ended up enslaving his own people, which is getting again back to that point you're making of how much they've become like Egypt. So we are going to see a lot of that theme in this chapter today. We're going to see God critiquing Egypt. Although I did want to point out that this is an interesting in terms of just uh, the ending is generally a little bit more positive towards Egypt, right? Mm -hmm. Like the ending of this chapter is uh, that uh, they're actually going to start worshiping God, um, which is uh, really different than some of the other endings we've gotten in these, this Oracle of the, against the nations, a lot of the nations, Moab in particular, I remember is just dark and they don't have any positive ending at all, you know? And so, and there is this sense, even in the new Testament, when, uh, the day of Pentecost comes in Acts 2 um, that uh, Egyptians are mentioned as being a part of the first uh, Christians um, in that community. And so there is this kind of through line in the Bible of God definitely judging Egypt, but also, um, as we'll see in some chapters further in Isaiah, he also has this soft heart, I guess I'll say, mm -hmm. for Egypt in particular. And uh, so we'll definitely get to see that in this uh, episode. So I'm excited to dive into the chapter. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. All right, let's do it. A prophecy against Egypt. See, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him, and the hearts of the Egyptians melt with fear. I will stir up Egyptian against Egyptian. Brother will fight against brother, neighbor against neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. The Egyptians will lose heart, and I will bring their plans to nothing. They will consult the idols and the spirits of the dead, the mediums and the spiritists. I will hand the Egyptians over to the power of a cruel master, and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. The waters of the river will dry up, and the riverbed will be parched and dry. The canals will stink, and the streams of Egypt will dwindle and dry up. The reeds and rushes will wither, also the plants along the Nile at the mouth of the river. Every sown field along the Nile will become parched, will blow away and be no more. The fishermen will groan and lament. All who cast hooks into the Nile, those who throw nets on the water, will pine away. Those who work with combed flax will despair. The weavers of fine linen will lose hope. The workers in cloth will be dejected and all the wage earners will be sick at heart. The officials of Zoan are nothing but fools. The wise counselors of Pharaoh give senseless advice. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am one of the wise men, a disciple of the ancient kings. Where are your wise men now? Let them show you and make known what the Lord Almighty has planned against Egypt. The officials of Zoan have become fools. The leaders of Memphis are deceived. The cornerstones of our peoples have led Egypt astray. The Lord has poured into them a spirit of dizziness. They make Egypt stagger in all that she does, as a drunkard staggers around in his vomit. There is nothing Egypt can do 
head or tail, palm branch or reed. In that day, the Egyptians will become weaklings. They will shudder with fear at the uplifted hand that the Lord Almighty raises against them. And the land of Judah will bring terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom Judah is mentioned will be terrified because of what the Lord Almighty is planning against them. In that day, five cities in Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord Almighty. One of them will be called the City of the Sun. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender, and he will rescue them. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and in that day they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They will make vows to the Lord and keep them. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. They will turn to the Lord, and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. All right, so this was a fun chapter one to read. There's a lot of imagery in this chapter uh, that uh, was fun to uh, just research this week. And one of the first things I wanted to point out, even uh, before we get started, is that there is a lot of imagery in this chapter to the book of Exodus. And a lot of the events that happen to Israel in Exodus is being rehashed in this chapter. So for instance, you'll see at the top at the very first verse, it says, see the Lord is rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. Um, what's really interesting about that is that in the Exodus story, it's actually the swift cloud that uh, leads the Israelites out of Egypt and away from Egypt. And so it's this reversal of that metaphor of uh, God riding on a cloud, and uh, instead we see the swift cloud coming to Egypt, um, which I think of in, in the hearts of the Egyptians, I think of their fear when God uh, leveled the plagues against them. I think of the last thing they see as the Israelites leave is just this huge cloud of pillar of cloud that's just leaving their city and now the very opening of this chapter is this cloud returning to their city uh, and just that fear that's probably been put in their minds over the centuries from grandfather to grandson of the stories of what happened in Egypt um, you know you can see almost this bit of this uh, opening to this passage is like even harking back to to that period and to what's going on here. Ashley, you had a really interesting point, though, about how um, a lot of this, especially in verse two, where it says, I will stir up Egyptian against Egyptian, is sort of showing similar things that Israel ends up doing. Maybe talk about that a little bit and just what's going on there. Yeah. So when I read that, I thought about the inner turmoil that was going on with Israel, um, how specifically during the, the book of Judges, where God was constantly sending them judges and they kept going through this repeated cycle of the judge would watch over them. And then when the judge would die, they would worship other gods and then God would send um, another nation 
information to come against them and the judge would have to come to deliver them. And then when that judge would die, then they would go back to repeating the pattern. And it it ended up creating a lot of inner turmoil towards the end of the book of Judges where they're all fighting against the the tribe of of Benjamin. And it kind of seems like, you know, that inner turmoil is going on here um, from the lack of keeping God at the center of what they're doing, kind of similar to the Israelites. But I like the point that you brought up about um, the references to Exodus, because I saw that too and completely forgot. I was like, how did I do that? So I'm <laughs> so glad that you brought that up because I probably wouldn't have wouldn't have noticed it. But yeah, that does kind of remind me when you get down to verses five. Um, I kind of saw like the waters of the river will dry up, kind of going back to how God turned the river to blood and mm. how it was like the water wasn't able to be used, even though it's dried up here. The water was blood back in Exodus and they were not able to use it. Um, the reeds and the rush, uh, rushes will wither and the plants along the Nile kind of reminds me of the locusts coming and devouring everything. And um, so that, yeah, that kind of stuff. Um, the fishermen were grown in lamets, um, that kind of stuff, like the plague is coming. It's like a, re- a repetition of the plague is coming back again just in a in a different kind of way and so yeah yeah no and i think uh as you get through uh the uh verse four here you know we talked about how um uh ethiopia takes control over the egyptians at one point Mm -hmm. and a lot of people actually think that um in verse four uh the statement i will hand the egyptians over to the power of a cruel master a lot of people think that that's like the king of ethiopia that's gonna Mm -hmm. have uh power over them it's just a theory though we're, we're still trying to figure out how all these prophecies actually work in uh history but um a cool interesting thing is as we get down through um the section that you're talking about where you know the nile dries up is that most of the reason that this is focused on is that the nile was the greatest source of Mm -hmm. economic prosperity for the people of egypt Um, and pretty much every other nation really envied um, egypt because every other nation had to really find good sources of water underground or they either had to build their city next to a river Um, that was really the only two options was either hopefully dig and find a well uh, or build your city next to a river that's fresh water um, because that's the main thing you need to have a healthy civilization in this time period and so what we have here is a city that basically got really lucky and has multiple rivers that flood all the time the Nile continuously floods even to this day and what that allows is for them to set up rice farms set up all sorts of different crops and agricultural things way easier than pretty much any other region and when the river would flood it would actually water all of their crops and all of their land and they had set up these really ingenious ways of making that work so that they could have all of their crops really just watered by the river itself and Mm so when you have uh, this situation where God's predicting that their river's going to dry up. Really, this is a, um, a moment in which he's saying, I'm going to kill your economy, you know? And I think about the fact that like, uh, you know, in uh, 2020, we just kind of went through one of those moments where God just sort of put a stop to everybody's economy. And that's really what I think is at the forefront of what he's saying here about Egypt is this is going to be a full stop economy for you. And that's why when we get into the, uh, kind of closer down all of the like workers in cloth and linen, those that work with combed flax, all of these people that kind of work in this economic trade, they're the ones that are going to be dejected. They're the ones that are going to have despair because that's what's going to basically be at the root of uh, punishment for this group of people overall. And so, yeah, it's a little different than like, you know, Moab, for instance, was like a punishment of like, Uh, violence and like peoples are coming to attack them and kill them whereas like 
this is a much more an economic judgment of sorts, um, which uh, just is interesting how God is handling each individual city differently. And I will bring up the point that uh, Egypt was known far more for their economic prowess than their military prowess. They often didn't go up into the land of Canaan and try military conquest. There's one key event where they did do that. Um, and they did have a few conquests and, um, some of the Pharaoh Kings, uh, were known for doing, um, conquests really more for their own status. If they didn't go and do a combat up in the North, um, they were considered a weak Pharaoh. So there was almost like the societal pressure to go and try and conquer something, but it really was more of a pomp and circumstance event than it really was like an actual, like we want to expand our territory and we want to kill people and we want to conquer people. It was far more about, the Pharaoh proving himself as a warrior than it was like him really trying to like kill people. And so you can see that God's dealing with this city in the ways that they most value themselves. And he's hitting them in the place where they most value, uh, their, uh, pride they, they most put their pride in basically uh and that that shows through here in this passage um as we work through we get down to the bottom where there's the section on the wise men um and also there's a section where it talks about um uh them going to mediums and spiritists that's up in verse three um but the wise men and the mediums and spirits all of this has a relationship in egypt because egypt was predominantly known for uh, being very occultist in their ideology. They really leaned heavily into um, the thoughts of communing with the dead and having a lot of spiritualism involved in that ritual. That's where we get mummies today is how much they valued um, embalming the dead and all of those different kinds of things. And so even in, here in this uh, chapter, we see, uh, just a little hint from the author of calling out some of their ultra spiritualism as it were, uh, and really having a negative view on that, uh, overall, um, at the end of verse 15, there's really this break from the poetry section and we get a new prose section. So this is a section that's not poetry. It's just straight readings. And you'll notice again, our familiar phrase that we've seen in several different passages up until this point, which is the in that day, um, section. And really these sections are meant to be taken separately and we have i believe five of these um at the last yeah. part of this chapter where we have an in that day in verse 16 and in that day in verse 18 and in that day in 19 i believe there's one right in the middle let's see yeah and in that day uh right in the middle of verse 21 and then an in that day uh at verse 23 and i noticed like in that first in the day i know in some translations don't say weaklings it says women yeah. And so, yeah, because uh, I know some people, I guess if you're a feminist, some people may be offended yeah. by that. But I guess they were just speaking during that time period to get people to understand what they were trying to convey. That's a really yeah, that's interesting. The <laughs> NIV that we're reading from has a tendency to try and make things gender neutral mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the time. That was a big point of contention, actually, for a lot of uh, the recent updates with the NIV. Um, but uh, yeah, they they are making an interpretive decision there um, and translating uh, women as weaklings there mm -hmm. um, really because 
more i think they're going for like a, a thought for thought translation approach there where it's like the thought of women is that they're weak in the society and so we'll translate this as weaklings instead of just as women because people might get confused if it's yeah. just saying women yeah. but yeah yeah that's a that's a great point to bring out is read different translations because you'll get to see things like that where a translation is making a call in that regard and i kind of uh, i was going to say this too when you were bringing up the issue of the wise i mean that also kind of reminds me of israel um how basically god is kind of confounding the, the the sources they use to find wisdom to consult whatever knowledge that they have and it kind of reminds me of amos when amos is prophesying against israel and saying and saying that god's going to send a famine on the land not a famine of bread but against the word of god and so they're going to be searching high and low for the word of god and not be able to find it and it kind of reminds me here how they're searching for some type of spirit to give them some type of answer a conclusion or something and they're not able to find it because God is preventing it kind of like how he did to the Israelites. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a great point to bring it out. Um, when we get into uh, verse 16 here um, with the, in that days um, we have some really interesting things that are happening. And again, with callbacks to Exodus. Um, so when we have um, the uplifted hand that the Lord Almighty raises against them, that's a callback to when God tells Moses um, to stretch out and lift your hand against Egypt and I will smite it with my wonders. Um, and this idea is basically a callback again to that moment in Exodus where we have this uh, moment of Moses lifting up his hand and bringing down, down the plagues on them. Um, another thing that we see as a callback um, to that is actually in uh, verse uh, 20, where it says, it will be a sign and a witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt when they, meaning the Egyptians, cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors. Now, that whole phrase is the very phrase that the Israelites are the ones calling out to God because of the Egyptian oppressors in Exodus. It's the same phrase. Um, he will send them a, a, a savior and a defender, and he will rescue them. Um, so the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. So what's interesting is there's this role reversal where now it's the Egyptians that are raising their voice and crying out to God, and God's going to send them a savior um, just in the same way as the Israelites raised up their voice and God sent them a savior through Moses. Um, and so there's this really interesting kind of dual play theme going on here where the nation that was once the oppressing nation is now the oppressed nation. And God then will do the same thing he did for the Egyptians that he did for Israel, which I do think is beautiful. Like, I think that's a really interesting theme. It also is funny because in verse 18, it talks about yeah. how there's going to be speaking languages of Canaan now, like they're actually becoming more like Israel, even in their own language. Um, and uh, this idea of one of them being called the city of the sun is really interesting because the sun was really the most powerful God in the Egyptian uh, uh, religion. Um, it was the God Ra. And so it's this interesting idea, idea of they're going to have a city of the sun, um, but now they're going to swear allegiance to Lord, even though it's going to be a city of the God Ra, you know? And it's like, almost it's like, you're not even going to remember Ra anymore because you've got, uh, you're swearing allegiance to the Lord Almighty. Um, and uh, even the city that is most 
obviously probably going to worship Ra is going to swear allegiance to the Lord Almighty, which I just think is kind of a cool, just like kind of a little jab almost as it were. So yeah, I was, cause I was going to ask a question about that in verse 18 is I was wondering if it was meant to be taken literally or if it was like figurative as if they were sort of speaking their own language, but then they were including the same, I don't know how to put it, putting the same words like the same meaning behind what they're saying in their own language as the Israelites does. Yeah, and I did just look up a footnote here, and it does seem to indicate that in some uh, texts, like specifically from the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, it doesn't say City of the Sun, but says City of Destruction. Mm-hmm. And so there, there are some text variants to that in particular name. Um, but I do think the overall kind of point is that um, even the city that you would think being named after the god Ra is going to swear allegiance to God. And um, there's a lot of debate about whether or not this is historically going to happen, or is this more of a uh, statement of overall hearts being uh, convicted of worshiping God? And this might not happen on a city level, you know, not on a metropolitan level, but it might happen individually in the hearts of the Egyptians. And this is a poetic and colorful way of describing that. And there's a lot of different debates about that. I, you know, I haven't looked into all of the history of this time to really like map on, did these events actually happen? Was there actually a city in Egypt that like decided that like they were going to completely start to serve Yahweh. Uh, I don't know if there's any evidence of that, but um, I do think that there is in some cases um, a lot of emphasis on things like this in um, the prophetic books, not necessarily to tell you this is an event that's going to happen in the future, but to give you a more poetic and broader sense of what is it going to be like in the future for the Egyptians and to let you kind of imagine as it were what it would be like for their hearts to be transformed. Uh, and then that process through all of this like uh, imagery and things of that nature and these metaphors. So I think that's kind of what's happening um, again, totally okay. If you actually believe that um, there was a city in Egypt that did do this, that's uh, I'm not going to debate that. I think that's silly to debate, but um, that's uh I'll just leave it up to you guys to do some more research in your history books and see if you can find a city that ever kind of fits these qualifications. Um, the last section I will talk about that's, uh, you had a really interesting theme on it that, uh, I'd like to hear a little bit more from you on, uh, is this part in which it says in that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to, uh, Assyria. Maybe unpack what you were telling me a little bit earlier about that. Yeah. So when I was looking at commentaries about that section, it was basically saying that, it's not literally talking about Egypt and Assyria um, because Assyria and Egypt were kind of like the big powerhouse countries of those days. It's using that to symbolically refer to everybody in the world. And so when it's saying Egypt and Assyria, it's just another way of saying that everybody in the world is going to come and they're going to worship together. And I kind of like that concept, but I know that when we were, um, before we started um, recording, I know that you brought up a really um, good idea about how Assyria was like the north and Egypt was the south and how it was like the northern part of the world and the southern part of the world coming together, which I think was a really great um, idea. And I think even more interesting is that last sentence, like um, God calling Egypt his people and then Assyria his handiwork and Israel his inheritance. So it's like three different classifications of those three different 
um, countries. And it's kind of like, you know, what exactly does that mean? Because I was trying to get into that because that was really interesting. Yeah. Well, I will point out, you know, your earlier point was that Egypt is really taking on a lot of the same storyline that Mm -hmm. Israel is going through, right? Mm -hmm. And I've kind of showed how they're even like working that out in the Exodus story. Well, what's interesting is when uh, it gets to the last verse and it says, blessed be Egypt, my people. Mm -hmm. Now, up until this point, the only people that has been called my people has been Judah and Israel. There are no other people has been called my people. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that even at the very end, you have this like reversal again, where Egypt's being called that. And then um, Assyria is being called my handiwork, which makes sense because if you think about it, Assyria is like the powerhouse of violence, really. They're the ones that uh, really Mm -hmm. have like conquered most of the world. And so it would make sense that God is looking to Assyria as evidence of my power, right? Which is a, uh, awesome claim to make is like look at the most powerful empire in the world and that's my handiwork right mm-hmm. um and then israel i i do think that that's this is really uh beautiful uh gets the term my inheritance um and this relates back to deuteronomy in which um of all the nations god has specifically chosen israel to be his people right and to be his inheritance and what that it really means is that you think of inheritance in the way of um being uh really a gift that extends from yourself so to speak so if you have like a um uh a bit of like let me try and think of this in an easy way to explain because it's hard to explain inheritance. I think a lot of times we think of inheritance as um, something that you get when your parent dies. You know, um, it's this like uh, amount of money that is given um, to you after um, your parents die and you inherit whatever is left over. And so we kind of associate inheritance with death quite a bit, but that's not really how they thought of it as much. They thought of inheritance as a gift from the father to the son, mostly. Um, And it was this uh, essential transference of all of the um, beauty and glory of the father to the son. And so when um, Israel often most times in the Old Testament is considered sons of God, Um, And so that kind of inheritance of uh, Israel to God is this transferring of all of the might and glory of God to the people of Israel. And that's why this uh, term is so jam packed with um, just beautiful um, and really fascinating and and odd things, because you would never expect a God to have any human as an inheritance and yet that's what you have here um, yeah, that kind of reminds me i guess of a spiritual inheritance when i think of it kind of like how god the original plan for israel was to be a light to other nations so i guess i kind of think of that as their inheritance as well as god gave them that ability so that they could spread it out to other people for other people to have so it's almost like even though it's their inheritance it's not something they're supposed to keep to themselves they have to share it with the other nations of the world which is why egypt and Assyria are listed even though they're not um they were not his first people. They are still his his people. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's exactly what uh, I think it makes this ending so powerful, it, especially um, for this time period. It gets lost a little bit for us today. It's just a little odd. Um, but for this time period, that was a really powerful thing to say. So, yeah. 
Oh. oh, I was going to say, and I think it's interesting how it says in that day, Israel will be the third along with Egypt and Assyria. So it kind of seems like they're coming after Egypt and Assyria are doing all this, even though they're the ones who are supposed to inherit. And it kind of reminds me of when Paul talks about the manifold wisdom of God, about how Israelites, the Israelites were his, you know, original sons, his children, but then they disobeyed. And so the Gentiles started to be grafted in and then out of jealousy, the Israelites wanted to come back. So it was like, well, that was kind of the plan all along that both Gentiles and Israel, the Israelites would dwell together and worship God together. And it kind of seems like sort of like, even though Israel was last, it's like they're the inheritance, but yet they're last, which is kind of ironic because <laughs> it seems like they're supposed to be first. Right. And so it's like, sort of like the thing that because Israel didn't do what they were supposed to, God had to go to other nations, but then they were still included because when they saw what was happening, the blessings that was bestowed on other nations because they kept God at the center, then they came back. So. Yeah, that's a really good point. That A lot of what you're uh, hearkening to can be found in Romans 10. That's mm-hmm. a big a passage that talks about uh, because of Israel rejecting, the Gentiles now get... Uh, uh, acceptance. So, uh, that, that'll be its own podcast. We won't get all into that, but, um, that's definitely a fun chapter to, uh, get through. Um, thank you so much, Ashley, for coming along with me today on this uh, really long chapter. This is going to be a long episode today. I can already tell. Um, so, uh, thanks for sticking around this week and we will be back in your feed next week to talk about Isaiah chapter 20. All right. See you later. Bye.